All right, hopefully we've got our Bibles open. Titus is a very short book in the New Testament. It is a part of a group of books called the Pastoral Letters. They were all written by the Apostle Paul to other pastors in different churches that had been planted around uh, the area of Samaria, Judea. Titus was a compatriot of Paul and was a fellow elder. And so this letter is Paul writing from pastor to pastor, urging him to make sure that the believers in the the province of Crete are living out their faith in truth. This letter has a strong emphasis on the passing on of discipleship from one believer to another believer. And it also talks about how that process is preserved through accountable leadership. And so the first chapter, which we're not going to get into today, establishes how godly leadership should be appointed. How should we decide who is eligible to lead in God's church so that the right things are taught, so that people are treated with with respect and honor, but also so that they are challenged to grow and to keep God's commands. Uh, When people try to lead others away from the truth, Titus chapter 1 also talks about how you should deal with that, how you should confront bad doctrine, and how you should deal with... uh, teachers who are misinformed or who are literally trying to lead the flock astray. Skipping to chapter 3, the last chapter of this letter, the theme is obeying and respecting the authorities that God has put into our lives who are given the responsibility of ruling over us. And so we are to be diligent to respect those that God has put into leadership authority and we are uh, called to obey them so that they can stop dissension in the church before it even begins. So sandwiched between those two chapters on leadership is a chapter in the middle, chapter 2, where Paul describes different types of people and how they have different roles in strengthening, strengthening the church's true witness to the world. Young people, servants, each are instructed in how they should glorify the Lord in particular and special ways. But the chapter opens by describing the roles of older men and older and then younger women as well, and how they can play a part in the edification of the church. So since it's Mother's Day today, it seemed very appropriate to take a look specifically at what Paul tells us the mature women of a given church can do to help the church live out faith in an honest and impactful way. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. So Titus chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 3 through 5. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish, uh, that they add, I lost my spot there. (laughs) Teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. This passage puts forth a model for biblical womanhood. It establishes a set of standards that describe a woman who honors God and who is worthy of imitation by other women. And it shows how older women should instruct younger women to exhibit godliness in their actions and in their attitudes. So there's a very strong discipleship theme here. 
The church grows and flourishes when everyone's eyes are on Christ, but also when we are helping one another to grow in our understanding of God's word and in our faithfulness to obey it in our day-to-day lives. And that is a process. That is, that is passing on of knowledge from one person to another. Some would, would question, is it even acceptable these days to identify unique roles and responsibilities specific to old people and young people, specific to males and females. And so this is perhaps a controversial topic to talk about on a Mother's Day. But the reason that we have gathered together to worship today is that we see God as the true creator, the Lord over all the things that he has made, the master of everything. And as we worship him, we humbly acknowledge his power. We acknowledge his wisdom. We seek it out. We, we, we praise Him and rejoice in the sovereign authority that He has over our lives. And so womanhood, along with any other category of humanity, any, any other state of being, is what God says that it is. If we want to know what true womanhood is really about, we need to look to the author of woman. We need to look to the Creator and let Him tell us what it means to be a godly woman and what women should strive for. We need to look past the novelty of the trends in culture and what the times say true womanhood is about and look to the source, to the ancient truths that God has revealed to us about what it means to be feminine and to be a woman who honors God. Now the fact that we have a holiday celebrating the distinctly feminine institution of motherhood is a reminder that men and women are different. Those differences are not to be ignored They are not to be looked down upon. They're not to be exploited either. They are differences that we are to come together and celebrate and praise God for. So I want to clarify before we get, get going this morning, you don't have to be a mother to be a good woman. I hope you know that. And I, I understand that each Mother's Day, there are some who are not yet mothers or who maybe because of circumstances probably won't get the opportunity to be a biological mother to another woman. And for them, motherhood can be a difficult thing for them to face. Mother's Day can be a day almost of of condemnation for them as they see the joy that other mothers get to experience and they wish that they had that for themselves. So I want to make it very clear. You don't have to be a mother to be a good godly woman. To be a, a good mom you're going to need to develop the kind of qualities that a godly woman has. But there are tons of examples of godly women in the Bible who were not necessarily mothers. In Luke chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, the scripture describes a man and a woman who were very righteous before God. Their names were Elizabeth and Zacharias. They were faithful in serving him. Zacharias was a temple servant. Elizabeth was a faithful woman, an example of godliness and all that she said and did. And yet they didn't have any children at all. Elizabeth was not a mother. She had longed to be a mother. But long before God ever blessed her in a miraculous way and gave her a child in her old age, she would come to bear and raise John the Baptist. But before that happened, she was considered and counted as a righteous woman. And she was a blessing to the community of believers who put their love and and faith and hope in the Lord God. And there are many examples of women throughout Scripture who are not mothers and yet did great things for the Lord and were commendable in His eyes. So you don't have to be a mother to be a good woman. But to fulfill the calling of motherhood, you must seek to be a good woman. 
And so that's why today we're going to look at womanhood together as we encourage our moms and thank them for what they have done in raising their children and influencing lives, but also challenge mothers to see ways that they can further glorify God as they grow in their faith and their understanding of God's word. To help your children to seek to grow in godly maturity, you yourself have got to determine to grow in godly maturity. Titus 2 begins with the Apostle Paul clarifying some of the responsibilities of godly men. Now we're going to be examining those responsibilities next month when Father's Day comes around. So we're going to skip those two first verses and we're going to go right to verse 3 which begins a section in which Paul talks about the godly virtues specifically of older women in the church. He says, to the older women likewise. And then he lists four characteristics of older women and how they should conduct themselves. Now, Older doesn't necessarily mean old. Now, I know that uh, Mother's Day, I've already started talking about a subject mothers don't like to talk about very much, which is age, right? When we think about older women, that does specifically refer to women who are along in age, who have accumulated a lot of wisdom, who have, by the virtue of their years, gained great insight into life in general, and specifically life with the Lord. But when you read these passages of Scripture, you could also see yourself and, and ask, how do I use whatever wisdom I've been given at this stage of my life to bless those who might not be necessarily where I am yet? If you are older than someone else, if you are a little bit more mature, if you are a little bit further along the journey than another sister who is younger in Christ, then these principles might also apply to you. You might examine yourself and ask, how might I pass on the things that others have passed on to me? How might I pour them into the lives of a woman who's just a little bit behind me in, in terms of age or in terms of, of maturity in the faith? You have an opportunity to help somebody else take the steps that they need to mature more greatly in God. Mothers, by virtue of their calling, and motherhood is a calling, don't miss that. Being a pastor in God's church is not the only calling we experience. Motherhood is definitely a charge to do godly things in a specific way so that you might please the Lord. So motherhood, by virtue of its calling, is a tremendous daily opportunity to wield the kind of influence that Paul is talking about in these verses. Because there's constantly someone less mature than you, your children, who are watching you follow God and who are learning how to be faithful to Him as they watch you be faithful to Him. Remember the words of 2 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 5, where Paul says, I thank God when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Timothy was another pastor who had served alongside Paul and also had served in different areas of Paul when he needed a strong and faithful pastor to help a church grow in maturity or to get well from something that they were going through that had had threatened to divide them. He says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, Timothy, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. See, Timothy was a powerful man used of God in, in mighty ways to strengthen the early church. But Timothy didn't have the blessing of a father who loved the Lord with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He was from a mixed home. His mother was Jewish and came to trust in Jesus Christ as she heard the gospel preached. As she saw her, grand, or her own mother, Lois, Timothy's grandmother, following Christ. But Timothy's dad was a Gentile. He was a Roman who did not 
trust in the Lord Jesus as his personal savior. And so you see here a man that was used in great ways by God was largely influenced by the impact of his mother and his grandmother and the faith that they clung to so dearly. The features mentioned here in this passage in Titus where it highlights the benefits of older women and how they can strengthen the church, they're not just inherent traits either. They're attitudes and actions that a woman will choose to integrate into their own identity. They will train themselves to pursue these characteristics. Paul's not just saying here, if you are naturally reverent or pure, or if it just so happens that temperance is something that comes normally to you, then step up and use that strength. We need women like you. Instead, what he's doing is he's urging all the older women in the church to take on the responsibility of seeking out these characteristics, of striving to be like this. This instruction is a challenge to greater discipleship for older women. So, if what we read here, this descriptor of what older women are supposed to be like, if this does not yet describe you and you are a woman, then don't feel today that it is, it is excluding you, that you cannot be used of God because that's not the kind of person you are yet. Some people are, are offended by Christianity because they feel like it presents a list of characteristics that describe the worthy people and condemn the unworthy people. But there's a misconception there. People who need to grow hear these commands, they might think, well, that's not me, so I guess I don't belong in God's kingdom. But none of us start out holy. Every one of us starts at the same place. We are all rebels to God, in need of salvation, in need of a God who loves us enough that He'll interrupt our lives and pick us up off the path that we're on and turn us around and put us on another path. So if you are not the woman described in these verses here, don't feel overwhelmed by that today. Don't feel destroyed by that, but instead say, that is the woman I need to be. If that is the woman that God is calling me to be, I want to start walking in that direction. I want to pursue that kind of discipleship because being a Christian is at its heart and soul a process of transformation where God takes you from what you were and makes you what he designed you to be. Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. All of us are in this process of transformation. And so if you're not quite there yet, praise God that the Word is leading you in that direction. Praise God that there are other women around you that perhaps are farther along that would gladly take you by the hand and help you to become more like this woman that is described here in these first uh, four characteristics of Titus chapter 2, verse 3. The first characteristic, older women should conduct themselves with reverent behavior. With reverent behavior. Have you ever heard the, the saying, there's a fine line between bravery and foolishness? I have heard that a lot as a young man who for a time fell into the vicious lie that I was invincible and that nothing bad was ever going to happen to me. I was often braver than I was wise. I would do things that came across as very courageous, but in reality, because I lacked wisdom, I was just being a dummy. So there is a very fine line between bravery and foolishness. In fact, there is a dangerous kind of bravery that doesn't come 
from a right confidence in our self, but rather from a dangerously low view of God. Some people have, have trained themselves to think so low of God that they are bold and brash about their sin. They believe in, in pride uh, that they don't have to be reverent to the Lord God, that they don't have to fear Him or honor Him the way the Scripture calls us to fear and honor Him. And so Paul is, is asking these older women to be committed to showing a reverent attitude toward the Lord, meaning that they will be respectful to the things of God, that they will show a humble fear of God and model that to the younger women in their church. There is such a huge swing in our society towards irreverence. It's almost like there's a committee somewhere trying to find everything that was formerly holy and pure and set apart and doing all they can to try to dismantle that and, and destroy that so that everything is now base so that everything is now normal and, 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 and typical and nothing is holy and set apart. But God's word cries out to us to think differently about this world and about life. That there are holy things that we must, we must hold with reverence, that we must be careful and not brave beyond wisdom. I remember a, a time in my focus group just a, a, two or three years ago when we were having a good time studying God's Word together and somebody made a joke, and it was a good joke at the time, but then later on as we gathered around to pray for one another's needs, we shared uh, our praises, we shared some of the things that were heavy on our heart, and then I was the person who was going to pray that night, so we were all holding hands, and I was, as I was praying, just something funny came to my mind about the joke we had told earlier, and I kind of continued the joke in the middle of my prayer, and people kind of chuckled a little bit. And then we, you know, we finished up with our prayer requests, but the, that night, as I went to go to bed, I just, it didn't feel right with me. And I, I had to ask the Lord, was that appropriate, God, for me to do that? To, to make light of a time that was supposed to be about lifting up my brothers and sisters who had a need. And I'm not saying that it's never okay to laugh while you're praying to the Lord. I think God, it, 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 He wants to know all of our heart and He wants us to be honest with Him. But I knew at that moment that I had taken a reverent moment and I had made it irreverent so that people would laugh at my joke. And the, the next week, I came back to my focus group and I literally asked them for forgiveness because I did not want to paint a picture to them of a God who uh, is, is no more than just one of our buddies. God is a friend to us, but He is more than just a friend to us. He is the one to whom we owe all of our honor and glory and praise. If it wasn't for His will, we would be dead right now. We would be gone. We would have no hope. And so I need to learn, and we all need to learn, to treat that God who saves us, that God who created us, that God of power with reverence and honor, and to maintain a healthy, fearful respect of our God, that He is the one that holds the keys to our future. A reverent woman shows rightful respect when respect is due particularly when it pertains to the things of God, not, not taking his name in vain, not joking about hell or the seriousness of sin, not being disruptive in the middle of worship services, not taking lightly what is serious and honorable. Now, I know the scripture is, is very clear that there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. And so that doesn't mean that a godly woman never cracks a smile. Far be it from, from me to confuse you and make you think that. Godly women are filled with joy. Godly women can get on the floor and play with toys with their kids and imagine and make believe. Godly mothers do these things. 
but there is also a right season for reverence and showing our children, showing the other women around us, the other people in our church, that God is to be honored and glorified above all other things that we honor. The second characteristic of, of a godly woman who's an example to the younger, older women should not be slanderers. There is tremendous power in words. This alludes to the great influence that, that older women and mothers can have in the community of faith. Their opinions carry a lot of weight. And I've heard from time to time uh, from, from people who hold more of a feminist viewpoint of life that men have kind of monopolized influence in culture. And people who think that women don't have as much influence of, in culture have never experienced the power of an older woman's gossip. Let me tell you what, words have power. And when a woman in church begins to speak about people in a slanderous way, it can have a tremendous negative effect on the church. It can make a body of believers who once saw themselves as a family feel instead like a house divided. And so Paul is appealing to older women. You've got to be unified in the way that you address problems within the community. Speaking truth about others is a serious, serious responsibility. And so older women... You're being challenged here by the Apostle Paul to be defenders of right dialogue in your church, to take on the responsibility of guarding conversations. When you hear younger women who are falling into this pattern that is also normal in secular life but should be very foreign in the church, this pattern of making light of someone's problems or spreading rumors of things that are not confirmed truth or talking about someone's problems without going to them to help them out with that problem. If you hear that as an older woman, then please be bold enough, be strong enough to step forward and say, that's not what is glorifying to the Lord. If we have a brother or sister who has a problem, what can we do to go and help her with that? What can we do to go assist that brother or to be there by his side? This is not how we build strong bonds of unity in the body of Christ. Words are to be used to glorify God. And if someone sins, we learned last week how to deal with that, right? We lovingly and truthfully go to that person face to face and talk to them about it. And then we offer them the forgiveness and the reconciliation that God wants when division threatens his people. So older women are not to be slanderers. They are to speak the truth and they are to set that standard for the younger women. Thirdly, older women should not be given too much wine. Moderation in general is applauded in Scripture. Uh, we see it in finances. Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9, for example, says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, unless I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See, there is, this, there is a strength in wanting enough, but not wanting more than you should really need. We see moderation hailed as a good thing when we talk about our view of ourselves. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So we, we've got to be careful that we don't think more of ourselves than we ought to, but instead that we should strive for humility, that we should have a right view of ourselves instead of an inflated view of ourselves. We see moderation uh, applauded in the things that people eat in the Scripture. Proverbs 28, 27, whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Gluttony is, is eating and eating and eating just for the sake of eating, eating more than you really need. 
And so even in the way that we eat our food, we should be moderate in our intake of, of food. We shouldn't just gorge ourselves or look to our food for our joy. Our joy should come from the Lord. So moderation in general guards against idolatry. It keeps us from putting on a pedestal and worshiping things that are created and helps us to be diligent about worshiping only the creator of all things. And it helps us to avoid having distorted priorities where the things in life that don't matter begin to monopolize our time and our resources and our attention. And so here we are told that older women who are an example to the younger should be an example to them by not letting themselves be given to much wine, by having moderation in what they consume. Sobriety is also specifically heralded as as a blessing to believers. We learned last week about the difference between belief and faith and how in the English language, belief is often relegated only to the mental aspect of things, but how biblical faith talks about not only about what you believe and think, but also about what you do, about how you put it into action. Now listen, if we are allowing ourselves to stray from sobriety, then we have poisoned our ability to act in godly ways because our ability to think in godly ways has been set aside. And so sobriety should be key for a woman who wants to be an example to others, for a woman who wants to set standards that other women will follow in, who wants to plant a legacy of godliness. Sobriety should be something worth striving for. There is so much strength when someone goes through difficult trial or the hardships of life, and rather than turning to some man-made medication that will make someone's thought life so cloudy they can't see their problems, will make them forget for a short amount of time what heavy responsibilities lay on the, on the shoulders of those who are going through trials, but rather instead turns to the Lord and asks for His help and for His strength and support. That is such an example to the younger women. So we are, to, uh, we are to help and encourage our older women to be an example in sobriety for the younger. Fourthly, older women should be teachers of good things. Teachers of good things. Not just able to do good things themselves. Not just personally aware of many good truths, but willingly engaged in sharing what God has opened their eyes to with the younger generations of women that come behind them. Now, we as a church are what we call complementarian in theology. We believe that men and women, while equal in value to God, God does not value men more than women. He does not value women more than men. Though men and women are equal in value to the Lord, we are not entirely the same. Men and women were designed with undeniable differences, and they have been assigned different duties and responsibilities within the church. And so to be complementarian means that we affirm the biblical pattern of God using men in positions of leadership in the church. So at First Family Church, we won't ordain women to be elders here because we believe and see in the pattern of Scripture that that is the pattern that was set for us. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some gifted and godly teaching women in the body of Christ. Women who have gifts to share and to expound and to clarify and to help other people understand and recognize the, the weighty measures of truth that exist in God's scripture. We uh, at Kids Club the other day, this is the after school Bible program that we hold as one of our ministries here at Sutter Elementary just a couple blocks away. I got the blessing of being able to watch Louise Burleth teach our children on Thursday. 
And here's a woman who has been gifted with, with an incredible ability to, to communicate with children and to connect to them. And my son, Adam, is about to, to graduate up into the youth group, and he's very excited about that. He's very excited to learn from Pastor Paul and to be along uh, some more mature thinkers and to, to think more deeply about theology. But at the same time, he's really going to miss, he's told me, he's really going to miss his teachers in children's church because people like Louise have really poured into him and have given him a love for the Lord. So being complementarian doesn't mean that you think women cannot teach. Some, some of the best teachers in the body of Christ are women. It simply means that God has assigned roles and responsibilities that bring diversity to the body of Christ. And we're not all exactly the same. We have roles and jobs that God has ordained for us, not based on our merit or our ability, but based on His strategy and His design for God's church. So Paul urges women here, in whatever avenues are afforded to them, teach good things to others, setting patterns that are worth repeating, patterns that have been set by more experienced women that came before you. Influence at its most basic level is basically showing somebody else, this is what is important to me, and I would encourage you to consider it as important to yourself. That's teaching at its very core. And so Paul is asking women to do just that, to make it very clear to those who look to godly older women for advice, for counsel, for direction, for example, that they would use those opportunities to point people to the truths of Christ. And that they should make opportunities available to younger women to be mentored and to be guided in that process. You know, knowledge is, is a wonderfully, potentially powerful thing. But if you keep knowledge to yourself, you seriously limit its impact. If you can take the knowledge that has been given to you and give it to others, then you multiply its power to affect the body of Christ. After verse 3, Paul tells Titus that the following instructions should come to younger women by way of these older women that we just described. The verb in verse 4 is that these older women should train the younger women. Literally, that word is rooted in this idea of bringing someone to their senses, helping them realize the truth of God so that they can apply it in a way that changes their lives. And you know, friends, motherhood, at its very basic elements, motherhood should be discipleship. Motherhood should be discipling your little ones so that as they see the truth of God alive in your life, as they see you caring about the things that Christ cares about, they will desire to also follow after Christ, to be like Him, to pattern the things that they believe and trust and hope for on the things that Jesus told us we should believe and trust and hope for. So motherhood is at its core discipleship. We don't just receive our kids already preformed from the factory from God. They're not just going to be like they are at, the, at their earliest age. They're not just going to be like that for the rest of their lives. We are called to shape the hearts and minds of these little ones. Much like Jesus called the 12 disciples to himself, not because they were the most qualified guys, but because Jesus desired to shape them into men who could make an impact in the kingdom of God. He taught them things they needed to know. He showed them things they needed to do. He gave them opportunities to try to do those things. And through victory and defeat, through success and failure, he coached them every step of the way. That is training. That is true discipleship. Age itself, by the way, does not qualify one to teach, but it can be a tremendous help. 
if one's lived long enough in the direction of pursuing Christ, they've probably gathered a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge about how to do that well and how to avoid the pitfalls of being a part of sinful humanity. And so here the older, more experienced women are not just to conduct their own lives with honor as a blessing to themselves, but they are to share that pattern of obedience obedience with the women who are willing to receive it. And so these older women, Paul instructs them to help the young women love their husbands and their children. To love their husbands and their children. Anybody who spends a significant amount of time studying what is important to God will see the emphasis that is put time and time again on love. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son into the world so that those uh, who were dead in their sin might not perish, but might believe in Him and have eternal life. We are told the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The great commandment is not just do lawful things. It is love the Lord your God. And if you don't love God, then you have an awful time trying to follow His laws. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Care for them. Want what is best for them. We're even taught to love our enemies by our Savior Jesus and by His example. And so love is so very, very important, but it should not be taken for granted that a wife will just naturally love her husband or her children because love is hard, hard work. Love as it is described in the Bible, not love as it is sung on the pop airwaves, but love as it is described in the Bible requires self-sacrifice. It requires incredible patience. It requires personal risk. If I want to love you, I've got to put myself on the line to do that. I've got to make myself vulnerable to you. So love is not something that is actually very natural to the human heart, which tends to be selfish in nature. And so the older women are to help the younger women to remember their calling, not just to be good wives or be good mothers, but to be loving wives and mothers, to care for their husbands to care for their children. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, is a section of scripture that a lot of people um, are familiar with. It is directly after the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have both sinned against God. They've done the one thing God told them they were not allowed to do. And now God has called them out of their hiding and has brought them before himself so that he might render some consequences for their sin. First, he condemns the serpent and curses him for the influence that he had on this situation. And then one at a time, he brings Eve forward and then Adam and speaks to them. And listen to what he has to say to Eve in verse 16 of Genesis 3. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And so any woman who's... who's had the blessing of giving birth or carrying a baby for nine months knows that it's very, very difficult. And part of that is, is for, you can say thanks to Eve for part of that because she's the one who messed things up for us, right? Uh, in pain you shall bring forth children. But look at the second half of this. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The Lord was making it very clear to Eve that for the rest of, uh, of the time of the fall, that women were going to be struggling with this idea of being independent from their husbands 
or worshiping their husband in ways that they should not. It was going to be a struggle for them. And that God was going to use husbands to lead wives so that they might understand what it means to follow and trust after the Lord God. The greatest expression of love towards your husbands and children will be experienced when a godly woman rightly loves God first and most and then lets that love for God flow into their other relationships. So God doesn't want you as a wife to love your husband more than you love him. God doesn't even want you as a mother to love your children more than you love him. Because the best way for you to love your kids is to love Christ first. To put your affection for him, to put your worship for him before anything else in your life. And when that happens, your family will find itself in a godly order. The Lord will bless, the Lord will guide and lead because you are honoring the command of Scripture. Now, some might say that loving God is easy, but you don't have to love my husband. You don't have to take care of my kids. It's not easy being me and my family. Now, is having a husband who is difficult to love reason enough to ignore the instruction of Scripture here? That's a question that's fair to ask. Motherly love is patterned after godly nurturing love. Luke 13, verses 34 says, O Jerusalem, this is Jesus speaking, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often, I w- often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. So you see this picture of a loving God that desires to nurture and draw near. The pattern for godly, loving motherhood is actually in the love that God expresses to those that He has created. And the love of God doesn't look down on His creation and say, well, these ones are too hard to love, so I'm going to turn my back on those. But because these ones do what I say, I'm going to love these ones. Instead, Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, If you have a difficult family situation, that's not a good reason to stop loving your husband or your children. It is a reason to love the Lord God all the more and to put all your eggs into His basket, letting your joy, your strength, and your fulfillment come from your God. And instead of relying on human beings that so often let us down and fall short of our expectations, that we are to love the Lord God first and strive to be led by Him. Next, uh, the older women are instructed uh, to help the younger women to act discreetly. To act discreetly. Now that's a word that means that you're able to control yourself. You are temperate. The ability to manage one's emotions and thoughts and hold sway over their impulses can be described as discretion. At times this is expressed in action. Discipline to do what is the right thing to do. At other times, this is expressed in inaction. When you are compelled to do what you know in your heart is not loving, is not true, is not right, and through discretion, through temperance, through self-control, you hold back and refrain from doing anything of the sort. Control is a very interesting concept to consider as we work through this model of godly womanhood because there are many women who would look at this list that we're working through together today and they would say, This whole idea of biblical womanhood is a religious way to control women and to take control out of the hands of women and to put it in the hands of men, specifically religious men. There are many who would come before 
this passage of Scripture today, many women who would bristle at it and would, would balk at the idea of anyone telling them what it means to be a woman, especially a man who doesn't have the experience of being a woman. And so it is, it is a, a very delicate uh, scenario to walk across. But the best response to that idea that godly womanhood, this description of godly woman, is man's attempt to control woman, is this. Christianity is about putting control back where it really belongs. Not in the hands of human beings, whether male or female, but in the hands of the God who created them both. That's what Christianity is about. It is about control. It's about a God who made us, who deserves honor and praise, who has every right to control us and dictate what is right or wrong, and yet we as sinners have tried to wrestle that control away from Him. We have tried to rebel against Him. And we've created some very, some very interesting uh, self-justification ways to, to, to justify that act of rebellion and pride. But when it boils down to it, every person has a sin nature. And our sin nature is a rebellion against a sovereign God who deserves to be in control of all that He has made. So the best kind of self-control is not self-control at all. It's deeper than that. The best kind of self-control is rather a joyful submission to God's control. You've got to trust Him to have that kind of submission. But when you can come before the living God and say, I have seen your love. I have seen your wisdom, God. You have proven to me that you are true and that I can trust you. Here is my life. I am tired of pretending like it's mine to control. Have my heart. Have my mind. Take my dreams. Do whatever you think is best for me. I will follow your lead. There is so much joy in that decision, even though from a human perspective it is terrifying to think about just handing over control like that. But we will not experience the joy of the Lord until He gets to be what He is, which is truly the God of our lives. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. You can trust that God because you can see the love that He has shown in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. Knowing that you owed a great penalty to God for your own sin, but knowing that only Christ could pay for that penalty, He sent Him to earth to walk a perfect life, to live absolutely in submission to the law of God, and then to give that life on the cross so that our sins, when we trust in Him, would be punished once and for all, and then in in rising from the grave to show us that we can have new life in Him. What a beautiful blessing it is to be submitted to the control of God. Nextly, Paul uh, in, in, encourages them, instruct young women to value purity. To value purity. That's what the word chaste means, to be pure in heart, to care for, for things that are holy and set apart. And that includes, but is not limited to, sexuality. Is it oppressive for the word of God to instruct women to treat their sexuality as a holy thing and not to use it as a tool that can get them farther in life? A lot of folks who have this mindset in the secular world today that women need to gain more power for themselves would say that this, this idea that there is a, a holy and pure way to dictate the way you live your life sexually, that that's just oppression, that that's just the control of men, but they have not yet seen the glory of God 
They have not yet been able to see that he is a trustworthy God who designed our sexuality for his glory and not just for our enjoyment. This is how radical Christianity is to the culture that we're trying to reach. Purity is often equated as foolishness outside of these walls. But when we come before the Lord's word, he reminds us that purity is honoring to God. It is worship to him. So younger sisters in the faith, do not let the world cheapen the sacred gift that God has given to you. Be pure. Be determined to keep yourself holy unto your God. And if marriage is a part of your life, then be determined to keep yourself only to the husband that God has given to you. Don't give into the lie that your sexuality is a weapon to be wielded against man or that it is a tool to be used however you want, but rather see it as one of the many gifts that God has granted to you to be a steward of, that you are to manage that gift well in a way that pleases the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 3-4 says, Do not let your adornment, your appearance, be merely outward, arranging of the hair or wearing gold or putting on fine apparel, He encourages women in verse 4, rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And it's so sad to see the way that women dress these days and the way that they are using their sexuality almost as collateral, almost as a manipulation means so that they might get something from men, when in reality they are so much holier than they realize if they would simply trust in the Lord God and view themselves the way the scripture describes them, as a daughter of the king, that they might treat themselves with dignity and not put so much emphasis on what appears on the outside, but instead that they would focus on what, what matters on the inside, the inward person who loves the Lord and cares for his word is much more beautiful than an exterior beauty that will fade. This beauty is incorruptible. It is not superficial and it is precious in the sight of God. Next, we are told to instruct the young women to be keepers of the house. Keepers of the house. Now, I I imagine someone's going to go home after this morning and be asked, how was church on Mother's Day? And someone's going to crack a joke. The pastor just told the moms to be better housekeepers. That's, yeah. Thanks a lot, Pastor Nick. Uh, the stigma is that domestic proficiency is not worthy of praise. That it's not the kind of work that anybody would ever want to do. That if you could do anything other than keep your house in order, then do that. But family happens in a house, right? The word in the Greek is oikos. That means household. That's what you use to describe your family. You are spending time and space together. And so shouldn't it be an honorable thing to create an environment where that that can be done pleasantly, where we can do that together in a place where we can enjoy our home and live at peace and in cleanliness and with order? It is not exclusively the responsibility of women to keep a house in order, but it does fall under her realm of responsibility under the the delegated authority that God has given to each men and women, women have the responsibility to make sure to keep their house in order. Now, God has to transform our minds to holy perspectives on things like this because the world has worked so hard to prevent our, or to pervert our thinking on what is noble and what is not. Listen to these words from Vivian Gornick. She's a feminist author, very well-known voice in the feminism community. She uh, is employed as a professor at University of Illinois. And she says, Being a housewife is an illegitimate profession. 
That's the whole thrust. The choice to serve and be protected and plan toward being a family maker is a choice that shouldn't be. And then she says, the heart of radical feminism is to change that. You see, there is an intentional effort by many in our society to strip the dignity from a station in life that God has called honorable and good. When you sacrifice yourself for the betterment of your family, that's not disgraceful. That's not oppression. That's love. That's living in the pattern of Christ who sacrificed himself for the good of people that were angry with him, that spit at him and mocked him. He gave himself to change their hearts. And so, women, do not let somebody look down on you for caring about your household and for being willing to walk in this responsibility that God has given to you. Again, this job is not exclusively hers. I hope that some of you women woke up today to a clean house and maybe a breakfast made to you for Mother's Day, right? This is a shared responsibility. But it is a feature of womanhood that should not be overlooked or cast aside simply because our society says it's unpopular. Next, we are to instruct young women to be kind. The word is good there. It literally means to be kind to others. And it almost seems that we don't need to say this, right? Don't we know that as Christians we are to be kind? This is the most generic and widely used term that can be uh, describing goodness in the scripture. It's agathos. It describes what originates from God and is empowered by Him in their life through faith. Mothers can have such a tremendous impact on their little ones, on the people around them, if they would be willing to model and teach a serious view of compassion and kindness to others. The impact of feminism has caused women to adapt the less than noble aspects of manhood in pursuit of equality. Many women in our society become crash and rude and have stopped being as compassionate as they have in generations past because people have convinced them that that's not somehow as noble as being a hard-driving male. But I am so blessed today on Mother's Day to think about the impact that my mom has had on me and on my ability to love the Lord and to love His people. If it was not for my mom, I would be such an angrier man than I am today. I would not be able to look upon others in their hurt and feel what they feel if it wasn't for the, the, the example that my mother set for me in my life. See, we are not as dynamic as God is. We come to worship a God today who is perfectly loving and at the same time, perfectly just. He is compassionate, but He demands truth. He is long-suffering and patient. But at the same time, he will not overlook what is right. This God is all things at all times. But we cannot be as dynamic as God is. And so he has given certain individuals the ability to express parts of who he is better than others. And I can tell you what, my mother and the motherly figures in my life have really helped me to see the loving aspects of God that were not easy for me to see as a man. And we should rejoice in that ability to to show kindness to others should be a goal of people who want to express and practice biblical womanhood. Next, instruct, and this is the last point on the list, instruct young women to be obedient to their own husbands. Let me start by making this very clear. Submissiveness is not only for women. We all need to understand that. Submissiveness is not only for women. 
Guys don't get off the hook when it comes to submissiveness. We are all called to follow in very specific ways. At the beginning of our lives, we begin our lives by being told, honor your mother and your father. Submit to their will. Follow their rules. Operate in a way that they have set up their household. Honor the way that they lead you. We are called by the scripture to honor the leaders that have been given authority over us. We are to pray for our president, our senators, our congressmen. We are to respect the laws that they put in the land, even if we don't agree with their policies. As long as the people who are put in power over us are not telling us to do what is sinful, then we should obey and be thankful for the order that comes from their work. We are told to follow the patterns that are set by our wiser teachers, to come up after them and to follow in their footsteps. Even Christ demonstrated submission to the Father in the way that he lived out his life here on earth. We see it in the book of John as he showed that he would only do what the Father would have him do. And in doing so, gave us this incredible example of willingness to follow after the Lord God. So, Obedience is not just for women, it's for all of us. But specifically, women have a responsibility to, to be obedient to their own husbands. And notice that means to their own husbands. They are not to just be submissive to any man that comes around them. They are to submit to the one person that they choose to enter into covenant with through marriage. And women, let me give you this piece of wisdom as well. Don't covenant with a man that you cannot see yourself submitting to. If you want to be obedient to the word of God, then realize that this is a responsibility that's been given to you as part of biblical womanhood. So if you're currently dating or seeing a guy who you feel you have a hard time respecting enough to follow and to submit yourself to, then that's probably not the person that you should marry. Because first and foremost, you want to obey the Lord. And if marrying that guy is going to make you not be submissive in a way that's going to please the Lord, then you need to find a person that you can respect their leadership, that you can trust their wisdom. Order in the house is in many ways determined by the humility that a man and woman display in the fulfillment of their roles that God has given to them. Husbands are called to love their wives, not just in any old way that they want to, not just in the way that they see fit. How are they called to love their wives? As Christ loved the church. That's the pattern that is set for them. That's how they must love their wives if they want to please God. And that means self-sacrifice. That means being willing to die if necessary for your wife, for your kids. In the same way, wives are given a pattern to follow. Honor your husbands. Not just any old way you choose, not just when you agree with them, but by supporting their leadership in the home. As we follow the Lord God's instruction so too should we see our husbands as a godly shepherd that helps us and guides us in, in, in the way that we walk if we are to be godly women. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. Now leave that up on the screen for just a minute. This passage of scripture is sometimes pulled out of the context of Galatians chapter 3 and used as a get out of submission free card for women who do not want to come into the leadership of their husbands. This passage of scripture, let's be very honest, is not talking about the oikos. 
This passage of scripture is not talking about households. It is talking very specifically in a very narrow way. It is saying that when it comes to salvation, that salvation is for anyone who will believe. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a slave man or a freed man. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Greek or whatever your ethnicity is, that salvation can be yours if you trust in Christ. So this is not about the household. This is about salvation. When it comes to the household, God has given us responsibilities. And we cannot just push those responsibilities to the side because they do not match the sensibilities of our secular society. All of this is very important if you are a woman who wants to honor God. Why? Because you are told to do these things so that the word of God will not be blasphemed. All of this obedience that we just talked about is not to make society better for the guys. That's not what it's there for. It's not so that you can earn enough brownie points to get yourself into heaven because we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. The reason that this pattern has been set for you in in godly womanhood is so that the name and the word of God would not be blasphemed. You see, when, when we claim Christ and we tell the world, I'm a Christian, I believe, I follow after God, but then the clear patterns that God has set for us are ignored and we live as if we were independent free agents from God, kings to our own kingdom, when we live in that way, then we do damage to the great name of the Lord God. We make God's word look like it's meaningless. So women, if you want to honor God today, if you want to be worshipful to Him, take this list that has been given to you here today and meditate on these things. And ask yourself, God, how can I follow this list better? Not for my own sake, not for my husband's sake, but because I want your name glorified in this world and I want, to be, I want you to be glorified through me. How can you use me in such a way that you would be lifted up? Christian blogger Rachel Schultz write, writes, Christians should be on the front lines of those who champion valuing and protecting women. In other words, it should be very important to us. We do not, however, overlap with the current feminist mantra And that is good. To be a real woman, all you have to do is, well, nothing. Because God made you one or he did not. She writes, I love being a woman, but even more than I am female, I am in Christ. Do you see where that priority is set right? Where she loves being a female. She loves everything about being a woman made to bear the image of God. But what is most important to her, more than her womanhood, is her ability to praise and glorify the Lord God. That must be our emphasis. Christian woman, as you embrace your feminine calling, you defend the integrity of God's word. A Mother's Day sermon does not need to be about girl power. It's truly about the power that God displays to the world through the holy calling of motherhood. Would you bow as we close in a word of prayer today? God, we thank you for this day. I praise you for the word and how it directs. I praise you for the word and how it corrects, Lord, how it encourages, how it helps us to discern between what is wicked and what is good. Lord, we want to live lives that are pleasing to you for your glory's sake. And so I pray that you would bless and keep us today. We ask that you would help us to rejoice in all the things that we have learned. And I pray that as these men and women and children go forth into the world today, that we would have in our minds uh, gratefulness towards the mothers you have placed in our lives, that you would help us to rejoice at their impact and their influence. We thank you for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.